Good morning, church family. Good to see all of you today. You know, she's not in this service, but um, our uh, director of women's ministry, Caitlin Shan, just got back from a retreat in uh, North Carolina, which was the end of her journey towards ordination where she was certified ready to be ordained. And so we are rejoicing with her. We can clap and excited to uh, discern next steps with her, but we're excited with her as she's been in this journey for quite some time. You know, when I was in eighth grade, there was nothing I desired more in life than to be a rock and roll star. Uh, I wanted to be like Robert Plant, the front man for Led Zeppelin, which was my favorite band at the time. And of course, the only problem was I wasn't very musical and I couldn't really sing. Um, But that didn't stop me from listening to their live album, closing my eyes and imagining myself performing at Madison Square Garden in front of thousands of screaming fans. Um, Our desires are funny things because our desires are windows into our soul, even the adolescent desires of an eighth grader. What are some of your deepest desires? Maybe for some of you, it's to be with someone who truly sees you and loves you for who you are. Or maybe your deepest desire is to be successful in your field of study or to get straight A's in school. Maybe it's to be so financially secure that you never have to worry about the future and you never have to rely on someone else. Maybe your deepest desire is to retire and watch your grandchildren lead happy and successful lives. Perhaps your deepest desire is to make our country better or to reform and renew the church. Our desires reveal both beauty and brokenness. If you've taken our Belong class here at Glenkirk, you know that Glenkirk is part of a network of churches um, across the country called the Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians, which is a mouthful, ECO for short. And one of the lines from ECO's statement of faith says this, no part of human life is untouched by sin. Our desires are no longer trustworthy guides to goodness. And what seems natural to us no longer corresponds to God's design. When we think about the devastating impact of sin on the human condition, that's a statement really worth reflecting on. My desire to be a rock star when I was in eighth grade wasn't merely about my love for music. It revealed something broken inside of my soul. It reflected a desire to be validated by other people because I didn't have a sense of validation inwardly. My eighth grade desire for cheering fans reflected an inner emptiness that I couldn't fill by myself. Another way of saying this is that our desires are disordered that our desires are a mixture of God-given beauty and sinful brokenness, all stirred together so much that we can't separate the good from the bad on our own. This disorder of our desires includes our, our sexual desires, our career ambitions, 
Our longings for friendship and family, our our drive for security, our desires for our nation or for our church. Because of the devastating impact of sin on the human condition, our desires are no longer trustworthy guides for what's good and right for us and for each other. So if we're serious about living as disciples of Jesus, our desires are going to need to be reformed. We're 10 weeks into this fall series of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Today, we have just two more weeks to go in this series or after today. And then this next week actually also marks the final week of our seven-week discipleship groups. And let me say, it's been so encouraging to us as your pastors and elders to see 260 of you participate in one of these groups. And even though we only asked these groups to meet for seven weeks, if your group talks and they want to keep going, you certainly can. Just let Pastor Kate know. And please let us know about how God has been working in your discipleship group as well. We would love to hear some stories about how people are growing in their relationship with Jesus. Now, last Sunday, Indra from La Casa Church and I talked about reforming our judgment. And today we're going to talk about reforming our disordered desires. So if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts? To those who ask him. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. You can be seated. Last week, we talked about Jesus's command not to judge other people. Jesus is clear, Matthew 7, 1, do not judge, it's a command, or you too will be judged. And I suggested last week that Christians should judge values, ideas, and options, but not people. We judge values to determine right from wrong. We judge ideas to discern truth from error. And we judge options to evaluate decisions when we have to make decisions. But Jesus commands us to resist the temptation to set ourselves up as judges over other people. Instead, Jesus calls us to love people. In Bonhoeffer's classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that judging people makes us blind, but loving people helps us see. He says that we cannot judge and love at the same time. 
So Jesus says, instead of looking at the speck of sawdust we see in other people's eyes, we need to be mindful of the planks that we're apt to miss in our own eyes. Now, when we're tempted to judge other people, it's usually because we have a desire that that other person isn't meeting. Perhaps we want to be with that person, but they don't want to be with us. So we judge them. Or perhaps we want our grandson to get a haircut and get a job, but he doesn't. Or maybe we want our friends to vote for the candidate we support, but they support a different candidate. So we judge them. We want our daughter to stop living with her boyfriend or our coworkers to stop gossiping about us or our church leaders to do things the way we used to do them. And so we judge them. When we have a desire that someone else is not meeting, our temptation is to become judgmental, become harsh and critical, fault-finding, blaming, manipulative, angry. And when that, does, that happens, we become blind to the planks in our own eyes and fixated on the speck of sawdust in another person's eye. You see, judgment of other people says far more about our own disordered desires than it says about the person that we're judging. So what do we do with these disordered desires? How do we untangle the impossible knot of which parts of our desires are good and God-given and which parts of our desires are selfish and sinful when they're all mixed together inside of us? What do we do with these desires? Instead of trying to manipulate people or criticize them when they don't give us what we want, Jesus invites us to bring those desires to God. In verse 7 of today's reading, Jesus gives us three invitations, ask, seek, and knock. And then in verse 8, he makes three promises. Those who ask will receive, those who seek will find, and those who knock will find the door open to them. In other words, Jesus is inviting us to pray in these verses. Prayer is asking, seeking, and knocking. And many Bible scholars have pointed out that in the original Greek, these three verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are all in the present tense, which implies that this is an ongoing process. The, the New Living Translation tries to capture this idea when it translates it, keep on asking and you will receive. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. How does God reform our desires? He reforms our disordered desires through persistent prayer. That's how God reforms our desires. When we ask, seek, and knock, when we persistent, br persistently bring our desires to God, God actually reshapes and sifts through our desires. See, Jesus here is not promising that we'll get everything we desire if we just pray enough. We learned in chapter 6 of Matthew that Christian prayer is a relationship with God. It's not a method or a technique to get what we want from God. So this is not a guarantee that I would have become a rock star if I just prayed more about it. 
This is not a guarantee that a couple having difficulty getting pregnant will get pregnant if they just pray hard enough, or a separated couple will reconcile, or a diagnosis will be reversed if you just pray hard enough. Everyone who asks receives, but they don't always receive what they asked for. Everyone who seeks finds, but sometimes they're surprised at what they find. And everyone who knocks will find the door open, but sometimes the door opens to places we didn't expect. Jesus's point is not that we always get what we desire, but that God always responds when we bring our desires to him in prayer. And as God responds, God sanctifies and separates our disordered desires, separating the selfish and the sinful from the godly and the good. If I prayed enough, if I prayed to become a rock star when I was in eighth grade, perhaps God would have answered by filling me with God's assurance that his love was enough, that I didn't need thousands of people to affirm my value. God reforms our disordered desires through prayer. Then in verses 9 through 11, Jesus gives an analogy of a loving father who gives food to his hungry child. Now, in ancient Galilee, where Jesus grew up, bread and fish were included in every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Bread and fish would be the equivalent of meat and potatoes or rice and beans in other settings. <clears throat> Jesus says, if a hungry child asked their father for food, the father wouldn't respond by giving the child a rock or a snake. Now, a rock has no nutritional value, and a snake would just be mean, right, to give a child. Normal loving fathers don't give their children those kinds of gifts. Now, we all know that there are exceptions to this analogy, right? We know that there are some fathers who do give unhelpful and dangerous things to their children. When I met my birth father for the first time when I was 14 years old, he offered me cocaine. That was not a good gift. And even as a 14-year-old, I knew that that's not how fathers were supposed to act with their children. And as, as I later became an adult, I realized that the greatest gift my birth father gave me was staying out of my life, mostly. A loving father doesn't give his children gifts that are bad for them. And then Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. If loving fathers, even though they're sinful, know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will a good and holy God give good gifts? To his children. The implication here is when we ask, seek, and knock, God always responds with good gifts. Even if we're asking God for the equivalent of a rock or a snake, God still gives bread and fish. Even if we're asking for something that's harmful, even if we're seeking something that's hurtful, even if we're knocking on a door that will take us to bad places, God responds with good gifts because God is the giver of good gifts. God reforms our desires when we trust those good gifts, when we trust the good gifts God gives. Every answer to prayer is a good gift from God. But of course, it doesn't always feel that way, does it? 
Sometimes it feels as if we're asking God for bread or a fish, and it seems like God gives us a stone or a snake. And this is when following Jesus gets challenging, trusting that God's answers are good gifts. God doesn't always give me what I desire because my desires are no longer a reliable guide for what's good and right. As I look back at some of the things I've asked God for through the years, I'm grateful he didn't give me what I asked for. It's like that old country Western song. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Opportunities I ask God to open that remain closed. And please hear me here. I am not saying that everything that happens to us is a good gift. I'm not saying that if we pray for healing from cancer and God doesn't heal us, that means cancer is a good gift. I'm not saying that we pray for God's direction in a relationship and that relationship turns abusive, that the abuse is a good gift. That's not what I'm saying. We live in a broken, sinful world filled with with pain and evil and injustice. Pain, evil, and injustice, they're not good gifts. They're the product of living in a sinful world. But what I am saying is that sometimes what we desire from God in the midst of our world's brokenness reflects our own inner brokenness. Sometimes what we ask for, seek, and the doors we knock on are things that will harm us. And God always responds when we ask. But his response isn't always what we desire. The Christian life of discipleship, of following Jesus, is a life of faith where we learn to trust the good gifts God gives us. And as we trust God's good gifts, God reforms our disordered desires. Verse 12 is sometimes called the golden rule. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. At first, this saying seems out of place since Jesus has been talking about prayer. But remember, this chapter opens with Jesus talking about judging other people. And as I said earlier, that we're often most tempted to judge people when we desire from those people something that they're not giving us. We want people to change their behavior, change their ideas, reorder their priorities. We want them to love and accept us and agree with us. And when people don't do what we want them to do, we're tempted to judge them because they're not meeting our desires. So Jesus in verse 12 is coming full circle to what he started talking about in verse 1. Now, in Dallas Willard's uh, comment on this verse in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas reminds us that for followers of Jesus, our relationships with other people are never private. For a Christian, every relationship we have, no matter how intimate that relationship is, there are three parties in that relationship. Me, the other person, and God. And that's why Jesus invites us to take our desires in those relationships, to take them to God in prayer, to ask, seek, and knock. And then to trust how God responds to those requests, that that will free us to refrain from judging 
those around us. The golden rule is about how disciples of Jesus should treat people who aren't meeting their desires. Jesus has already said, don't judge them. But here in verse 12, he says, treat them the way you would want to be treated. Bonhoeffer says that Jesus gives us a simple rule here. Reverse the I and the you in the relationship. Put yourself in the other person's place and the other person in your place. <clears throat> Modern psychology has given us a word for what Jesus is talking about here, the word empathy. Empathy is the capacity to put yourself in another person's shoes, to imagine yourself in another person's situation so you can see what they see and feel what they feel. Instead of judging, con condemning, fault-finding, Jesus calls us to empathy. God reforms our desires when we treat people with empathy. Now, for some people, it's easy for us to do with them, especially to empathize with people who are just like we are. People who come from the same background, who share the same culture, speak the same language, people who've gone through similar life experiences as us. It, it, it's much easier to take the leap to imagine ourselves in their shoes to feel what they feel. <laughs> but it's much harder to empathize with people who are very different than we are. People who come from different backgrounds and different cultures, people who've had very different life experiences than we've had. It's a greater leap of the imagination to imagine ourselves in their shoes, to reverse the I and the you in the relationship, as Bonhoeffer says, and to see things and feel things the way they do. And that, yet that's exactly what Jesus commands us to do here. Instead of demanding that people do what we desire, Jesus calls us to treat them with empathy. When one of my sons was in high school, he announced to his mom and I that he had become an atheist. Now, he grew up going to church. He was a pastor's kid. He went to Sunday school. He was baptized as a child. He was involved in youth group until that announcement. But midway through high school, he experienced a significant crisis in faith, a disappointment in his relationship with God, and he concluded that God was not real. Now, as a parent, that kind of thing breaks your heart. Some of you are, are in that same kind of situation with people in your life that you love. Now, my desire for him was for him to come back to his faith, to trust and follow Jesus. And of course, that must be a fully pure and godly desire for him that came from my love for him. And it mostly was, but if I'm being totally and completely honest, some of that desire was also about me. I was embarrassed. Embarrassed to have raised a, a child who so publicly rejected his faith. I thought it meant that I was a failure as a parent. I thought it reflected badly upon me as a pastor. And my embarrassment about his crisis of faith said far more about my own disordered desires than what he was going through. My desire for him was a mixture 
of my love for him and my own inner sense of failure and shame. And I was tempted to become judgmental. And at times I was critical, especially as he began to make decisions that were inconsistent with the faith and the values that I'd raised him with. But I also began to take those desires for him, my desire for him, to God in prayer. And in prayer, I began to see that my own sense of failure and embarrassment were reflections of something that was broken inside of me. I prayed that he would come back to his faith, but he just became more and more entrenched in his atheism. After high school, he enlisted in the Navy. In fact, it's appropriate I share this story on this Veterans Day weekend. He went off to basic training in Illinois and then went to school in Virginia and Maryland. He was stationed in San Diego and eventually did a uh, nine-month deployment in the Persian Gulf. And during his six years in the Navy, we kept in touch and I continually prayed for him to come back to his faith. But as I did, God began to do some things inside of me. I began to see that God was answering my prayers for him in ways that I didn't expect. He remained an atheist. In fact, if anything, he became more vocal about it. But I found myself far less panicked about the whole thing. And the embarrassment and sense of failure, I felt, began to just disappear. And most importantly, I began to see my relationship with him grow deeper than it had ever been before. Of all my kids, he's the one who, when he was a young child, felt like he got the short end of the stick with me. But that began to change. I found that he wanted to talk to me about his beliefs, sometimes just to see how I'd respond, but other times because he really wanted to hear what I had to say. And it was strange that we became far closer in our relationship when he was an atheist than we had ever been when he said that he was a Christian. This change in our relationship was a good gift from God, gift I didn't even know to ask for. Now, a decade later, he would eventually come back to his faith. And his faith isn't exactly like my faith, but it's a true and authentic faith in Jesus. And, and I don't share that story because I think that every story like that ends the same way. Not, not all children who deconstruct their faith come back to their faith. I know that. But I share it because long before he came back to his faith, God had some reforming of my own disordered desires to do. And God gave me a good gift that I didn't even know I needed as I brought those desires to God. Our desires are disordered. They're no longer a reliable guide for what's true and right. And our relationships with each other, with people, are where we sometimes see this the most clearly. And part of our Christian discipleship is reforming these desires. God does that as we resist the temptation to set ourselves up as judges. And instead, we seek God. We bring our desires to God in persistent prayer. We trust the good gifts that God gives us in response to those prayers. And we show empathy toward the people around us. And as we do that, God will reshape us and mold us and separate the good 
and the bad, the truthful from the false, as we grow in the process of becoming more fully devoted disciples of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus. Lord, words that are hard for us to hear sometimes. Lord, words that cut against what feels natural. Because judging feels natural. And empathy doesn't. Father, thank you that you are gentle with us. That you see the deepest desires within us. And that you can separate the good from the bad. So, Father, help us keep growing. Help us keep bringing these desires to you. Help us keep asking and seeking and knocking and trusting that you are a God who gives good gifts to your children, that we might live the kind of loving lives of empathy that you call us to. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.